0: Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking HRV with Rhee. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 107 of the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. Today, we are joined once again with my good friend, Ree Reynolds, who's a board certified and licensed athletic trainer, a health and human performance PhD candidate, as well as a national champion Olympic weightlifter. Today, Ree is going to talk to us about heart rate variability and the importance of it on your recovery as well as talking to us about some of the most popular devices used to measure heart rate variability and the accuracy behind them. So, without further ado, Re, back on the podcast for the second time.
1: Yes, very excited. Thank you Ra- for having me.
0: Gracing us with your presence.
1: <laughs> Always a pleasure.
0: So, Re, today I want to talk to you about heart rate variability. And I guess I want to start off by asking you, what exactly is heart rate variability?
1: So heart rate variability is essentially a measurement of the variation in time between adjacent heartbeats. And it's typically used to measure how our cardiovascular system responds to stress. Um, We see more and more of this now um, with wearable technology. So we're going to see it across general populations in use in the fitness setting, but It's actually used in a lot of research settings. So in the clinical settings, we use heart rate variability to um, assess disease states, um, to also determine risk of mortality following, following any type of like cardiovascular incident, like a heart attack. And then also in sports science settings to assess overtraining or how athletes are responding to stressful stimuli such as training load, training intensity. Um, outside stressors and stuff like that.
0: So the athletic piece, I guess the sports piece is the part that we're now kind of transferring into gen pop in terms of looking at workout performance.
1: Yeah. So um, I think we should maybe talk about what it actually measures and how that's measured first before we dive into that. Okay. Um, So
0: let's talk about what we're measuring. Yeah.
1: Yeah, So um, the, the beat to beat variations that I was talking about is actually known as the RR interval. So if you think way back to when we had learned about the cardiovascular system in high school or even in college, and you can picture the normal waveform of the electrical activity of the heart, that highest peak is the R-wave. So the highest point there, the distance from that point to the next R-wave is the RR interval, which is typically measured in milliseconds. So when we're talking about heart rate by itself, we know that's assessed by a singular measurement that's beats per minute when we're looking at heart rate variability that's actually an average of several heartbeats so it provides more of a deeper look into our autonomic nervous system function
0: talk to me a little bit cuz you mentioned the autonomic nervous system and there is some uh nervous system play or nervous system at play here mm-hmm. so There's a lot, right? So talk, talk to us a little bit about the nervous system and its role in this whole process.
1: So when we're speaking about the autonomic nervous system, we're discussing the balance between the two different divisions. So we have the sympathetic nervous system or the division, which is the fight or flight response, which we commonly know. And then we have the parasympathetic division, which is the rest and digest. So when we're at rest, primarily we have vagal control, which is parasympathetic um, speaking to the vagus nerve. So that maintains our heart rate around like 60 to 80 beats per minute. When we have to respond to a stress, which is exercise, by the way, um, we're going to see more of vagal or parasympathetic withdrawal. And then we're going to see the sympathetic division kick in where you're going to see the secretion of norepinephrine to raise heart rate, increase respiration, um, decrease activity to the digestive system, and then you're going to see that increase in blood flow to the muscle. So really it's a perception that we're trying to get away from danger. So that's really, um, what we're trying to assess, like the balance between those two systems. So normally we have in a normal autonomic tone. There is a balance between the two systems and they work in conjunction with one another. They are able to work independently of one another, but they mostly work together. So when we're talking about heart rate variability, we're really trying to assess if we have more of a th- sympathetic drive versus a parasympathetic drive. So ideally when we're talking about readiness, we really want to be in a parasympathetic state before we undertake an activity because we're the most recovered and we're the most ready. Um, we're more cognitively aware. Whereas when you ha- are more sympathetic dominant, you're going to have more of um, you know, fatigue, you're not going to be able to physically perform as well. And then your executive functioning actually uh, decreases as well.
0: So sympathetic is just really more so stimulated by those stress hormones. Hormones. Right. So if we're uh, consistently like, let's say somebody's, I don't know, I guess we look at it like as like low grade chronic stress is Mm -hmm. is something that we talk about. So that's something that will affect somebody's sympathetic, put them in their sympathetic nervous system and then that will affect their heart rate variability, I guess, is what I'm hearing. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So, um, when I'm talking about the autonomic nervous system, like I said, we're talking about the vagus nerve. So that's the the main division that we're talking about and how that innervates the heart. So when we're looking at, um, how that it's effect on the heart we will have the more of the sympathetic fibers innervating the ventricles of the heart, because that's those are meant to be powerful, and it's meant to expel blood to get to the appropriate places to get away from danger. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not innervating the rest of the heart, but more of the concentration is there. Whereas the parasympathetic fibers mainly influence the SA and the AV node, so conduction, uh, conduction type quality. So it again also innervates the ventricles, but more so the the AV, the SA, and the AV node and the atria.
0: The RR interval that we're talking about, does that the kind of the space between those beats, does that increase or decrease under stress?
1: So when we're under stress, you're going to see that decrease.
2: So is that why people get like heart palpitations and, you know, rapid heartbeat? That's what I'm
1: thinking when you say
2: stuff like that.
1: So when you like initially, when we're under a stressful stimuli, we're going to have an increase in heart rate, the increase in respiration you might start sweating because core Mm -hmm. temperature raises. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're under that for a long period of time, you actually decrease your heart rate variability. So there's less variation between between the beats. When you're more rested, there's going to be a longer interval between the beats. So there's more room for variation. So a higher heart rate variability is going to be linked to um, a higher level of fitness and also uh, adaptability and ability to be able to take on stress yeah, essentially. So chronic levels, it should be noted too. And we'll get into this later when we talk about the wearables, but being in a chronic low heart rate variability state isn't good. So if it's just one measurement, we know that's not an accurate depiction of what's actually going on inside of our bodies, which is, I can say the same for everything else that we have to manipulate in our lives. Hmm.
0: So the more heart rate variability, the better, essentially, yes. more or less.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, depending on well, yeah, depending on which measurement we're looking at, uh, which we'll brush over because it does get kind of confusing. But um, if it's a higher heart rate variability, that's indicative of better health, um, you know, less disease state. Um, well, depending on which disease it is, just a better, better adaptability at, to be able to tolerate some type of stressor so you're yeah. more recovered so when we look at wearable technologies when it gives you the green light or you have um like a readiness score and it tells it you like you're able to push like that's it's higher
0: so can we talk about some of the ways to measure this as it pertains to i guess um I don't know if I want to call it like clinical and fitness application, or I guess really research application and how we measure it. What's the gold standard for measuring this type of stuff? I guess I want to kind of get into that.
1: Okay. So um, clinically the gold standard is going to be a multi-lead ECG. That's the most accurate method of measuring heart rate variability. Um, As you know, if you've ever seen a multi-lead ECG, you know, it's pretty cumbersome and um, it's difficult for the, the practitioner to apply and then also for the um, the subject to endure. Then there's also the other wearable technologies, which are more commonplace now that are less invasive, like, um, you know, chest straps. There's also single lead technology or like smaller multi-lead technology that's wearable. And then also the, the wearables on like wrist and fingertips. So you have uh, PPG, which is photoplethismography. So that's what we're looking at more commonly, like with the consumer. That's what they would use. So like a wristwatch or something like that.
0: So like an Apple watch, a whoop, right? Like Those are the things that we're talking about. Apple
1: watch, whoop, some of the Garmin watches. um, There's a whole bunch of different ones out there. The polar chest strap is actually an electrode. So that doesn't use doesn't use PPG. Is there a difference Um,
0: between electrode and PPG in terms of accuracy? The electrode is more accurate
1: the electrode is going to be more accurate um you're going to see again like a bunch of different things across the literature but i think maybe if we discuss how the data is collected and how it's recorded that then it'll make more sense
0: all right let's get why it.
1: it would be more accurate or not
0: let's let's get into it um but i have a, a question before we get into that is yeah. do you know if it's possible to do like since if that is more accurate. Is it possible to do that on a wrist-worn device or is that just not a good location for that?
1: For an ECG? For, elect-
0: for for doing an electrode, right? So you said it's on a, a chest strap, but it's not on the wrist-worn devices.
1: No. So um, how PPG functions is it actually measures the changes in blood volume beneath your skin, Um, which there's going to be room for error because, first of all, it's more distal to where the heart actually is. And there's also going to be um, an account for like motion artifacts. So um, motion noise can really impact that. How tight the watch is worn, skin pigmentation, tattoos, like all kinds Mm -hmm. of things can really affect that. So, you know,
0: it's interesting that you say that because I read a study a while back when I was looking into accuracy of calories on wrist worn devices. And it was like seven or eight there. I don't remember exactly, but I think it was like seven or eight different devices. And they looked at heart rate measurements as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and skin pigmentation was one thing that came up, uh, which is interesting in the research, because if you don't have a diverse population, you're not going to really know that information. Yeah. Uh, and when it came to Absolutely. heart rate, because they for the heart rate, I don't remember if it was the heart, I think it was a heart rate that they were using infrared technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some of these, and what they found is that the darker the skin pigmentation, the worse the reading or the, the larger the percent error would be.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. Like when you're wearing a, an electrode, like some of the um, wearables that involve electrodes in the study that I'm going to talk about later are actually really interesting. They have um, there's a few that have two different leads and they're worn on the chest which, you know, an electrode is obviously going to be more accurate because it's closer to the criterion type of measurement, uh, whereas we have the other the other wearables that have the the PPG type of technology. Not that it's necessarily bad because I'm not poo-pooing it, but um, as far as accuracy, um, when we look in that study, it's actually very interesting to see the comparison because it compares 32 different wearables together.
0: Yeah, it's a lot. There's a decent amount of data to compare. Yeah, like-
1: Yeah. And and some of them I've never even heard of. It would take me forever to just go and look up every single one and try to find a validation study for everything.
0: So we talked about the clinical application and I want to get into the fitness. So in terms of uh, the the testing, the clinical and then I guess fitness and sport performance is measuring different for sports.
1: So they're going to be wearing for sports performance settings. They're still use for the ECG, but that the measurement is taken during rest and position matters as well. So whether they're supine, whether they're seated, um, standing, whether they're active, um, if respiration is controlled, if respiration is not controlled. So there's still utility in that. Um, but there are studies where there are comparisons between using an ECG versus wearing something in the field. That's less cumbersome, like the polar chest strap. I think the polar H 10 is the most recent one now. There, it was the H7, but now it's the H10.
0: All right, so we have this uh, we have this ECG data and the data that they're using for you know, both clinical and fitness settings. What do we do with this information? how you know, collecting the information, interpreting the information? what what happens next?
1: So the the information is collected via the ECG and it's converted into a, a tachogram where the RR inter, intervals are all plotted out and then there's going to be different analyses performed with that. Um, As far as like length of time of collection, there's going to be a short-term recording and a long-term recording. So short-term recordings are around five minutes. Um, That seems to be the criterion for that. You can collect it in less than five minutes, but if you're going to be honest, do we really think that that's going to be the most accurate method of measurement? Um, 24-hour recordings, are going to be the more long-term measurement. They can be upwards of 24 hours as well, but 24 hours seems to be the standard, which is really important because you have to take into consideration the natural circadian rhythm activity that you've done throughout the day. Like That's going to influence everything. Whatever type of stress you're you're under, everything really plays a role in that 24-hour measurement. So that's obviously going to be more accurate than a a short-term five-minute recording where it's really just a snapshot in time unless you're plotting it over a series of, um, you know, weeks
0: and then collecting that and kind of cumulative data averages, things like that. Um, I want to kind of just backtrack a little bit because you did mention stressors. So what what are we looking at when we're looking at different types of stress and what is going to have an impact? Because you mentioned exercise and Nicole, you and I on this podcast have talked a lot about the effect of exercise, how people typically look at it as well, when we ask somebody, what do you do for stress management? And they're like, oh, well, I work out. And I'm like, "Okay, what do you do for stress management? Because the reality is that exercise is a stressor. Mm -hmm. And when we're looking at heart rate variability, if your heart rate variability is poor, then exercising may not be a good thing for you to do because that is an added stress. What other things are we considering when we're looking at things to i guess be mindful of that would be considered stressors that would affect your heart rate variability
1: it's really anything that affects your heart rate in general is going to affect your heart rate variability so stress in itself whether it's psychological whether it's physiological whether it's a combination of both is going to influence that and then we can end up in a stressful state because we have poor lifestyle behaviors or removal removal of external stressors if we have poor sleep patterns if we have, um, training stress as well, um,
0: dietary patterns, dietary
1: yeah. patterns. Yeah. So if you're drinking a lot of alcohol, if you're having mm. a lot of tobacco products, mm. if you're having a lot of caffeine, like mm. things like that are going to influence it because it directly influences your heart rate. And then we'll tie into HRV.
0: I should probably cut back on the caffeine then.
1: Well, is e why I too. gave up coffee because
2: <laughs> <laughs> this is really important point because like Deron said, we talk about this so much on the podcast in terms of, are you ready to work out? Stressed is, you know, kind of a broad term, but are you in a place where creating lifestyle change is going to be optimal for you? Because if you're already chronically stressed, for some people, like I talk about the different types of stressors, you have a stress starver, someone who's under stress and under eats, <laughs> and you have stress eaters who stress and overeat. You also have exercisers that are under stress and work out too much. And then the opposite, they're overstressed in life and they don't exercise enough. So I feel like so much of this becomes kind of a balancing act of, you know, where you're starting from, mm-hmm. what your goals are, which you've talked about many times, even on our last podcast together. and And then just, you know, the mental aspect of it. We have so many clients that stress over what type of food, how much food, when they should eat, how much they should eat like all the anxiety that goes into overthinking things. Mm. Uh, and I think all of that plays a huge role in their approach to creating lifestyle change.
1: That's a great point. And um, Daron and I were actually speaking yesterday about how if heart rate variability on a wearable is honestly going to be the best thing, or if that's going to create another right. stress So it's Mm -hmm. like the same thing. If you have somebody who weighs themselves every day and Mm -hmm. then they freak out and they see, Oh my God, I gained two pounds. And they think they gained two pounds of body fat overnight. And then it becomes a stressful behavioral pattern. That's not going to help either. That's just going to influence what's going on in your body. So if you wake up in the morning and you look at your um, readiness number and you're like, Mm -hmm. Oh my God, like, I can't, I, I must not be able to do this. And you keep getting a reading like that, or um, or you're just anticipating it because that's also going to affect the reading as well. Um, some of the studies that I've read were too close. Uh, the measurements were too close to what the actual stimuli was. So it, it affected the reading. So um, that has to be taken into consideration as well. And on and then on the other hand, it's great that we have access to all this data, right. especially as scientists, because we're like, wow, that's so cool. I get to see into all of this. But um, if that person's not necessarily able to interpret that, or they don't have those other lifestyle things in order, they're going to need to start there first before they have to worry about looking at what the score is on a wearable.
2: Yeah. And I think just taking the the progressive approach too. like, it's going to take time to build mm-hmm. up to whatever the goal is in any capacity uh, of whatever your exercise goal is, or lifestyle changes are. So mm-hmm. I also think people expect to put a wearable on and like, immediately burn, yes. you know, a huge amount of calories right out the gate. And everything is going to change, just like if they significantly add more protein. All of a sudden they're a master of nutrition and their whole mm-hmm. body should just change like that, of course.
0: Well, here's my, here's what um, the one thing that I think about is food journals. Right. And when people are too stressed out over logging in a food journal and then it's like, well, like just like mm-hmm. you mentioned, re, well, then don't log in a food journal, because if that's going to be a stressful situation for you, you're not going to succeed anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other thing I kind of think about is so when we're looking at like, hey, like when we're looking at certain wearable technology and where it's basically saying, hey, don't work out today, isn't it possible that that could be kind of misleading for Mm -hmm. the consumer because it's like, well, your lifestyle factors are stressing you out and you're actually not working out enough. So your heart rate variability sucks because of that. And, you know, not being physically active for you may be a stressor. And your watch is telling you not to work out today.
2: But you Absolutely. could still walk like it's yeah. about the intensity of
1: that, yeah, right? Yep. Lower intensity. So that would mean just back off. We're not going to go crazy today. We're not mm-hmm. going to have a super high intensity. We're do- going to do some type of active recovery. Yeah. So You can still be active. Mm-hmm. Yes. Girl but if speak. those if those lifestyle things aren't in order, then um, chances are your heart rate variability is going to be a low reading. But it depends on the type of technology that we're using and also what parameters it's functioning in, what time of day you took the reading, all those different things need to play. They play a huge role in an um, in accurate measurement for that. So the whoop band, for instance, that only takes one parameter of HRV and that's measured during sleep. So that's great when you're measuring during rest, but like, what about the rest of the day? It is capable of measuring... HRV continuously throughout the day, but it only takes into consideration the value that's RMSSD. So that's actually the um, root mean squared differences of the standard deviation. So that's a measurement of high frequency power or um, parasympathetic modulation. So of course, that seems like a great thing to use because if you're measuring vagal or parasympathetic modulation, you're going to have a more rested state. So Of course, that's great to look at. Maybe they only measure one metric because it's easier for the consumer to use. They don't want to see all this data and get super confused. But Mm -hmm. if you're only measuring one thing, how accurate can it really be? And also, it's again, it's the PPG technology, the sensor at the wrist. So we know that that can greatly affect it. Again, not that it's it's bad, but um, in a study that I was reading, the motion artifact is like a huge issue there. So it depends on the type of intensity that you are exercising at. So low to moderate intensity activities, there's obviously less motion noise, but if you have like a vigorous workout, that's going to affect it, which, why are we wearing it in the first place? Are we just trying to measure during sleep or are we trying to measure the entirety of our heart rate variability continuously?
0: You said motion, like, what do you mean motion? Like how much they're moving throughout their workout is going to affect the reading?
1: Yeah. So if it's like, it's a peripheral, it's on the periphery, right? Like it's on your wrist. So noise and motion, again, like all the other factors that I I talked to you about, like skin pigmentation, the tightness of it on your wrist, that's going to play a role. So um, there's going to be less of that less motion artifacts when you're wearing like a polar chest strap, for instance, or something with an electrode that's closer.
0: So the, when you're, when you're talking about Whoop or some kind of watch that's using the a, a different what was it? What was it called? P. Oh, P, P,
1: PPG Photo like, P, like,
0: like PPE, like protective <laughs> PPE
1: equipment or PNG. <laughs> I don't
0: okay, know. Okay, so P- PNG <laughs> <S-B-U>. images, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're, uh, we're, that's not directly measuring the heart rate versus the electrode, correct? Like it's not really looking directly at heart rate variability. It sounds like
1: no, no, no. It's, it's, there's an algorithm that the technology uses to determine heart rate variability based off of heart rate. So you know,
0: it kind of reminds me of like uh, measuring doing a Mifflin equation for your calories versus ind- <laughs> indirect calorimetry. Right. Or it, that that's kind of what I think of. It's like you're not really getting the gold standard when you're doing that.
1: No, and you're never going to have the gold standard, which is also important to understand because it's something that's wearable. It's easier to use in the field because of that. And it's not cumbersome, like in a laboratory, which is the same thing. If you're having, you have, um, when you're what's the, um, like the room where everything is controlled a metabolic you, chamber, metabolic chamber, like it's not, it's like the same thing. Like that's, there's a high level of control there. Right. So that's why that would be a criterion versus something that's able to be used in the field. As far as the polar chest strap, the H 10 is concerned that actually measured up really well compared to the criterion. So the ECG. And it actually, I wouldn't say outperformed, but it it was very close during vigorous activity. So um, it was great at rest. There was some variability between both measurements at rest, but not a not a huge amount. And um, you're able to access the raw data as long as you you're synced up with some type of app. There's continuous measurement of HRV on there. And then also battery life plays a role. Like, is there an internal memory? Is it robust? But it was valid compared to a criterion measure, which the whoop band is not.
0: Are there any watches that like if somebody didn't want to wear a chest strap because I know personally, chest straps aren't annoying, (laughs) they're annoying, right? You don't want to have to rip one. And also it's like, are you are we talking about like, are you going to sleep with a chest strap? Like, how does that kind of fall into it as well? Because you mentioned that we want to measure while you're sleeping at rest, too. Is there any watch that is considered maybe the better choice of them?
1: I would have to look into that more, but I'm looking at this chart right now and i'm not familiar with some of these so it looks like the garmin watches uh, don't measure up very well the athlete doesn't measure up very well the aura ring not great
0: the aura ring is, goes on your finger right that's like a finger thing i think that's a yeah
2: yeah
1: yeah so that that doesn't look like it's fantastic either um yeah it looks like the Sunto smart belt and Polar H10 look like the best wearables. But I'd have to look into more of these watches. The
0: yeah. smart belt kind of sounds like something that like I would put on my pants and push a button. And It'd be smart. it's like It'd be smart. And it would be smart and like, tighten my pants just like the right amount.
2: <laughs> Squeeze all the good brain capacity right
1: up. Yes, it, it's
0: actually going to push all the blood to my brain so to focus better and make, it'll make me smarter.
1: Or you might die of a stroke. I'm not really sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Either way, it sounds like a million dollar product.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> Maybe we should. Haven't them. you? Have you ever
2: taught classes, Daron, where they, where you, with clients that wear the chest strap versus the, the wrist, the watches? The thing about the watches that I hate is they don't. The connection goes in and out when they, are especially if you're lifting. If you have a weight in your hands,
1: mm-hmm.
2: especially a heavy weight, and you're squeezing through your hand, that it moves around. It doesn't stay in place.
0: Well, if you um, do over if you do an overhead press, it's going to affect like, your heart rate reading. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. But the chest strap, I mean, I use chest strap when I run. Like I've been training for a 10K again in my older. days. Nice. Yeah. Um, and I use the chest strap and I love it because it just gives me. a. I mean, I'm just looking for a ballpark. I'm not looking for obviously like a lab type mm-hmm. assessment. And I think that's a lot of what our clients are looking for. Like we know they're not a, accurate, 100 percent in that capacity. But we are looking for a general range. Are we close? Where are we? Are we headed in the right direction? And I like to look at how I feel versus what the read is. Because I think perceived exertion is another piece too. When you're working with a client and they're telling you they're dying and they look at their heart rate and they're clearly not. And (laughs) maybe there's a little bit more range there for peace of mind in terms of being able to push when they're okay or vice versa, if they are really feeling okay and their heart rate is very high, we have a little bit of, um, you know, measurement.
1: Yeah. So, it. I mean, it's important to note as well that heart rate variability is different between everybody right. as well. Like just like everything else, there's individual differences. Our age can affect it. Our gender can affect it. Our mm-hmm. training status can affect it. So those are other things that we need to consider as well outside of the lifestyle things that are controllable.
0: So when we're looking at research like that, like I'm, I'm guessing that there is probably like a like in general blanket statement, statistically speaking, heart rate variability should be this, but obviously on an individual basis versus like if you take a group of, let's say 2000 people and then you measure that and you say, OK, well, it seems like HRV kind of should be around this range. But then when it's almost like looking at BMI, like BMI fits in the research. But Mm -hmm. when you look at and I just use BMI because, you know, nutrition research is basically all I read. But you look at it in in large populations and you say, okay, well, this is where BMI should be. But then you have to look at the individual is basically what you're saying.
1: Yes. What else is going to be a range um, across different metrics? So that's that's how you would assess it. And again. We're talking about chronic measurements. So if you're chronically low, that's an issue. If you're chronically high, that that's a good thing. Um, but those short-term measurements, of course, they're important because they're a snap, a snapshot of what's going on in your autonomic nervous system. But I wouldn't take it, I guess, not take it too seriously, but freak out if you see a low measurement, you're like, oh my God, I can't do this. Like what happened? And then you start stressing out more. If it should return to normal, after you have appropriate recovery, like after we have a stressful workout, you have a heavy weight training session, you're going to have decreased heart rate variability. That's just what happens because that's a stress it's increased sympathetic drive. You have withdrawal of the parasympathetic system. And then once that returns to normal, you'll have reactivation of the parasympathetic system, and then you'll have withdrawal of the sympathetic system. So that's just really how that works.
0: Do we find that people that are uh, like more trained, they essentially recover quicker. So their heart rate variability goes back to parasympathetic at a quicker rate.
1: Yeah. So if you, well, if you're looking at like heart rate recovery, um, that's another metric that we use to gauge levels of fitness. So if you're able to return to baseline a lot faster then obviously that indicates a higher level of fitness, it's similar um, in that sense. So with heart rate variability, that really depends on um, the recovery level actually depends on the amount of Uh, parasympathetic reactivation you get, and also the amount of norepinephrine that's still left behind. So that takes longer to decrease after the cessation of exercise or whatever stressful stimuli. The parasympathetic system, though, in the beginning, um, it directly stimulates the SA and the AV node. So um, withdrawal of that increases the heart rate. And then the sympathetic nervous system kicks in, and then there's the secretion of norepinephrine. So norepinephrine, norepinephrine hangs around a little bit longer, and then that vagal reactivation will occur. And that's why it takes a little bit longer. But at the initiation of exercise, you'll have that rapid increase in heart rate. And that occurs because of how the physiology of the heart is.
0: You mentioned uh, bringing your heart rate down in terms of measuring somebody's ability to recover. We're also looking at heart rate variability in terms of recovery. And I guess also from a practical standpoint with your years of experience as a trainer as well, what do you think are some other things or indicators that we want to look at to measure recovery, either objectively or subjectively?
1: Okay. So that would really just be a conversation with your clients when they come in. I mean, if they come in and they had a really stressful day, stuff's going on and they don't feel well, I mean, I'm obviously not going to push them and we're going to adjust the program day to day. We have a program already laid out, but if they're not able to perform, then we're going to end up dialing back that day. But in like more of an athletic setting, if we're dealing with athletes where they have more of those factors controlled for, um, you know, in over training research, they so use HRV to determine if athletes are able to recover from the training load. So, all right, it's time for us to taper. Um, Or that athlete is trying to push too hard when they really shouldn't. So at least they have something measurable to, to pull them back.
2: My question would be, what is the, what is
1: the definition of overtraining? Let's start there. So there's differences in that overtraining is the last step. Um, You're going to go through overreaching. So there's, when we're talking about athletes, there's going to be functional overreaching. So that's where we push them deliberately um, through a peak. So then we provide them with rest and then they taper. So we're pushing them to a point of exhaustion where it will induce a, like a super compensation effect or an increased level of performance after they have restoration. Then there's going to be non-functional overreaching, which is something that's not planned. So that's a continuation of that functional overreaching, maybe mismanagement of the program, too much stimuli where that athlete's not able to recover sufficiently. And then they're kind of stuck in that. um, When we're talking about the gas principle, they're stuck in that alarm phase and they can't recover. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And then the last stage is going to be overtraining. So that's, that's an illness. Like that's a serious thing and it takes a long time to get there, but that's just a continuation of that without restoration. And you just keep pushing yourself really into a hole. So when HRV is used during this type of research it's usually during like a short-term training camp or an assessment of athletes that already have autonomic imbalance, like endurance athletes who are actually overtrained. They have a diagnosis, so it's used as a tool to assess them.
2: Yeah, so that's from a high, like you're talking high-level athlete, but I think all of those can absolutely be applied to even gen population, maybe not on the same level of intensity, but mm-hmm. I absolutely. I, I mean, we can talk about competitors. We could talk about. Just a uh, an overworked woman or mom, like those same steps to get to overtraining still happen for mm-hmm. Gen population, right? Mm-hmm. They just yeah. happen on kind of a, maybe a lower grade level, and there's not as much. I think it's actually, I don't know if you agree, but kind of more dangerous in that sense because no one's watching them. There's no actual you know, with an athlete, you're looking at all of these progressions to get to overtraining. But for someone that's just in the gym exercising, no one's really checking to see if they're chronically fatigued, if they're excessively hungry, if they're not able to sleep, mm-hmm. if they're excessively sore. Um, so if they're not with a coach or a trainer or someone that's actually helping them through that process, I think it's actually more dangerous for someone like the Gen Pop, because they, I think they essentially could push themselves to the point where they get there faster, not understand why they're there, and mm-hmm. then potentially stay there longer and have more of a um, you know, negative effect on. I think this is what happens a lot of the time to people that join a gym, go in, go hardcore. What do they last, like three to six months? They hit a wall, they can't continue to train, and then
1: they quit and think it doesn't work. Of course. That- so that's, yeah, it's more of an insidious onset, yeah. Wow. When, it, when it's someone in the general population, but I would say the difference between the two would be mm-hmm. um, mismanagement of the lifestyle factors would lead to that yeah. instead of the exercise. Of course, like we see people join the gym, they go too hard in the beginning, but it's not at the same level that an athlete would go. Also, there's a different mindset there. So yeah. an athlete might try to Just because there's a lot on the line, try to push through something when they really have no business doing it. Mm -hmm. General populations, we don't see it as much. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, but Mm -hmm. it's not really the same. So when there's the mismanagement of the lifestyle, the sleep quality, if they have a really incredibly stressful job and they're just high stress, sympathetic drive all the time, they don't know how to relax. Personality is going to play into that too. Um, Different ways that you interpret stress or perceive stress. That's that's a huge factor. And then the nutritional thing. So Mm -hmm. again, like how many of our clients come in and they're like, oh, I had a bottle of wine. I was so stressed out. I just really needed to drink. Yeah, almost a
2: a daily client of mine. like, Well, you're not
1: (laughs) helping not quite (laughs) our Yeah. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
0: Or how many people are under eating and they don't even realize they don't even recognize. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So they're not they don't have the recovery factor.
2: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So it is, that's what I mean by like a low, I don't know if the word lower grade, like Mm -hmm. situation, but I just, when I hear you talk about those things, I think of clients, I can plug someone into almost every one of those Mm -hmm. levels. And just like you said, just an overall, are they ready to really take on an exercise program or do they even understand
1: what it takes to, you know, recover? And that's what they need the appropriate guidance if right. you seek out the right professionals to help you when you're not aware that's very important so you're going to have more of an advantage instead of just trying to do it on your own and rely on things that you see on the internet i'm glad the internet's here it's a great tool there's a lot of information but there's also a lot of false information that people get on the internet and we've all experienced it yeah um, when we when we talk to these people Good you know stuff. what i'm
0: thinking about when you're talking about gen pop versus um athletes. i guess elite elite athletes is you have like um, athletes that like, let's say they don't train in the off season and then they go right into training and they train hard and then they get rhabdo. And <laughs> then and then you, and then you mm-hmm. had you had this uh, the CrossFit was the first place that I heard of rhabdo
2: mm-hmm.
0: where people yeah. were just coming from couch to Olympic lifting <laughs> and uh, re you being mm. an Olympic lifter. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I can assume or guess how you feel about that. Yeah, um, but w- <laughs> what what is what is um. Is that like from overtraining? It's like too much workload in a short period of time. Like what happens there?
1: It, 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 so it's too much workload and not enough recovery. Simply put, like if you're you have you're not able to tell. And also those people didn't build up a base. So like they have nothing. They went from no Literally couch. And they said, I'm going to go do a snatch. So like, <laughs> and they, they have no idea what's heavy, what's not heavy. If they're supposed the frequency of what they're supposed to be doing, um, how they're supposed to recover all of that stuff. But, um, someone can put themselves very easily into overreaching by mismanaging workload. And then also, um, under recovering, which of course would affect HRV, but that really affects everything altogether
0: interesting stuff.
1: Yeah. So I I think, I also think it's important to mention that when we talk about the autonomic nervous system and how uh, we're talking about the connection to the cardiovascular system, but also how it influences everything else. So how it innervates our, uh, the two different branches innervate our gut, (laughs) um, how that can play a role, how it influences our respiration. So digestive activity, respiration, our, the control of our heart, like various other processes. And now, now when you talk about the gut microbiome and then we're talking about levels of stress and how that influences as well, like you can see the connection here as to how somebody can end up in a state where they're actually not able to adapt. They end up in stressful situations and then they're not able to achieve the results that they want. Yeah, yeah, they can't digest half of the food they eat. Well, mm-hmm. it's,
0: it's interesting that you kind of talk about that because when you're looking at the vagal nerve, you're just looking at essentially something that connects the brain to all your organs, right? Mm-hmm. And when I, I mean, I've looked at it pretty extensively from a uh, gut brain barrier, gut brain axis is what we kind of call it, right? And the changes, like you're saying, in the microbiome. So you will see stress, psychological, physical stress, whatever it is. We'll call psychological stress, right? Uh, we'll innervate the vagal nerve, which will affect the gut microbiome, which will affect the gut mucosa, right? Then you have that changes, some changes in the lining and you have some changes in the tight junctions uh, between the, the cells in the lining of your gut. And then you have what we call like, quote unquote, leaky gut, which is a real thing. It's just essentially increased permeability. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're kind of looking into like how much of that is normal and how much of it isn't. But you end up with this hyperpermeable barrier and then there's a cycle of stress, right? Because you're stressed in your brain, you're stressed in the gut, and then the gut is signaling back to the brain to cause more stress. And then Mm -hmm. you're in this perpetual cycle of stress.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So then think about it. When we had talked earlier about the autonomic nervous system and what's involved between sympathetic and parasympathetic divisions, the sympathetic division is designed to really short term get you out of danger. So if you're stuck with this high sympathetic drive, which is decreased heart rate variability, and you have less parasympathetic activation, you're not able to digest the food that you took in because all that blood is shunted away from the organs to get you out of danger. So it, it all is related. So heart rate variability is not just just heart rate variability. Like we can, we can look at really just overall how stress is just affecting us physiologically and make those connections.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot going on outside of just heart rate variability and a lot of yeah. systems it's and just organs an indicator. are affected. Yeah. yeah it's and, just
1: like yeah. the cardiovascular indicator of how we're able to tolerate stress, but it is also used in other research. Like I had mentioned to examine executive function and cognitive Abilities as well, because if we're stressed, that's where we get the the brain fog, and we're not able to focus and stuff like that. So that plays a role. Um, low HRV has been linked to having decreased executive functioning in in certain cases, which it you know depending on which parameter that you're looking at. But um, it's it's really interesting to see how it really can be applied across a variety of different settings.
0: It seems like the brain and central nervous system and neurotransmitters are really kind of at the center of all of this.
1: Well, the neurotransmitters ha- um, are secreted by like stimulation of nerves. Yeah. So, yeah, when you have the stimulation of the nerve, and then you have the secretion of that, that's what's ultimately going to de- determine it. So, everything is really everything. <laughs> At it's the all end of the day, right? You can't separate. You can't separate systems. Yes. It's all one. Yep. Nope. They they're built that way for a reason. I was going to say, this.
2: What what's amazing is when we talk about all this, I don't think people really connect to how much our body does that we don't even know is happening, right? I mean, obviously, there's a lot going on. We're all just sitting here having this conversation and our hearts are beating and we're breathing and et cetera. But p- people don't realize their lifestyle has such an effect on the way they function and they all want the quick fix. As I sit here and think about this, I think of all the commercials that my clients come to me with. What about this supplement? What about that? And I'm like, mm-hmm. "Oh,
1: breathe.
2: Nicole, yeah. breathe." Because
1: we it's marketed <laughs> in a way where it it seems like it's the solution. So if right. you have this secret. one thing, yeah, like, you know, it again, it's great to have all this data that we're able to access, but if you don't know how to apply it, that's mm-hmm. re- and you also don't know what it is. Like, how's that going to be the solution if you have everything else in your life is kind of falling apart or it's not aligned the way it's supposed to be? Like, Mm -hmm. I think we should really focus on making people more intuitive and able to feel things a lot better. So, hey, I feel, I don't feel great today. Maybe I shouldn't do a max squat. You know, that's a bad idea. Or, wow, I feel really good today. I think I should really push harder. And of course, there's always that gray area. But if we got enough sleep or um our nutrition is on point um if we're practicing good behaviors as far as like removing other outside stressors from our lives like that's really going to carry you into um longevity yeah overall
2: such a good point of getting people to pay attention to be and being aware of how they feel and knowing what that like sweet spot is, like, are they doing, are, are you feeling this way just because, you, you know, I have clients that like to joke, I feel like I need to have a cookie today, Nicole, or like 10 <laughs> cookies. And I'm like, is that really how you feel? Uh, you know, we joke around about it just to be lighthearted and funny, but you're right. It's absolutely true. And I think a lot more people do know deep down, but ignore those signs. Like if you mm-hmm. go into a gym and you feel like you said, I feel like I could totally crash it today. I'm going to go for it. They ignore the days when they're like, "I probably, eh, I'm not really feeling it. Maybe I'll just, you know, maybe, take it. Maybe in. I should back off. Yeah, I'm and gonna say,
0: I think every day I feel like I should have a cookie. Which <laughs> we know, we know this. We know this. Um, <laughs> there's no bad day to have a cookie uh, in my eyes. No, but uh, I will say, what you, what I'm kind of thinking here is that with the wearable technology, it's kind of dangerous in the sense that if people are only thinking about training and training Mm -hmm. stimulus, and Mm -hmm. they neglect to really think about the other parameters that they're supposed to and, and really understand that there are a lot of other stressors that and this is where kind of coaching comes in, where we look at coaching our clients and saying, well, what are you doing to manage your stress? What can you do in terms of, you know, work life balance? Or what can you do in terms of optimizing your sleep? Or what can you do in terms of optimizing your nutrition? And I think that that can kind of fall by the wayside if you're just so focused on, should I train or not today?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I I also think um, this is probably could be a separate conversation, but um, we see a lot of things out there that kind of advocate for just pushing through it, despite how you feel, or you can only be successful if you lack sleep. And that's from personal experience. I can say, I used to think that way. And when I'm doing a Olympic weightlifting, which is a very sympathetic dominant sport. And I would go in and one day I would feel, Hey, this feels great. I can move this weight really easily. And then the next time I would go in 60% would feel like a max rep. And I'm like, man, what's going on? But you just push through it anyway, because that's what you're either told to do, or, um, you have other influences as well that are telling you, Hey, like just push through it, like get that work in.
0: That's why uh, that's why David Goggins never resonated with <laughs> I'm serious. there's actually so there's a guy that I follow on Instagram that makes fun of uh, he does this character and he's like a big like heavy set guy and he does like this shirtless like boobs flapping everywhere <laughs> flapping around and he uh, does uh David Goggins impression and he calls it J- David Joggins and he he'll be like running and he'll be like, you gotta keep you gotta push it, you gotta run. I'm <laughs> running right now with Legos in my shoes. You yeah. gotta keep going. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> right. And it's like the it's, most
2: painful. It's funny, but
0: like yeah. that's that's how he is, and that's the message that's being sent. And I'm just like, no, no, you got it all wrong. Like rest yeah, I, and recovery. <laughs> I,
1: I I read his book, and his book. I I do respect him tremendously yeah. for being able to push through things that I are unimaginable. And also his story really resonates with um my personal story as well. So I, I do respect him tremendously. But even David Goggins makes fun of David Goggins. Like if you I was gonna say his, he's done social his own. media, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, like he has some level of mental toughness that's like it's just ridiculous. So I respect that part. But yes, I mean, pe- people might perceive that like instead take that, all right. Well, I have to do that too. I gotta be like David Goggins and try to apply that in their own lives when in all reality that man has that level and you're trying to apply it to your own life and then you end up in a hole so well this is this was my whole point that I was going to
2: say about this I don't think if the message is well I know the message may come across go hard or go home type of thing but I think it's go hard or go home the end of that should say depending on your lifestyle and who you are and where you're starting and what your goals are like there should be an end to the sentence so if he if he's inspired if he inspires people to push harder at whatever place they're starting from, I think that's a fantastic message. And I think he, like I've, I've watched plenty of his videos when I don't want to run and he's like, come on. And I'm like, okay, come on, Nicole. Like, I'm not going to run like he is in the pouring rain, <laughs> you know, in freezing cold weather, but I definitely will get my three mile run in and yeah. push, you know, so you can got to take it kind of with a grain of salt and apply it to you as much as you can. Unfortunately, I do think people take it too literally. Of
1: course, they're running it, in the rain. The, the <laughs> message should really be like, go hard and go to sleep. Like, <laughs> like sleep go hard. To sleep and then Just take sleep, a nap, <laughs> sleep hard or like go home and go eat some calories. Like oh, go love home of God. or like, go hard, eat hard, sleep hard. Something. Yeah. Like that. yeah. Yeah. It should be. It should be that. And like, even. When I remember reading his book, he was talking about some um, some muscle tightness that he was experiencing, which is because he has he's so sympathetic dominant. He is probably just so tight from being stuck in that state for so long. So Mm -hmm. I would love to see during that period of time what his heart rate variability looks like. (laughs) Probably awful, like (laughs) in all reality.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a time and a place. And I do think that people should work towards developing that mental toughness. Yeah, Uh, I think it's very important for everybody to try and push to be more resilient mentally. But I also think that people need to be realistic and meet themselves where they are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I think everyone just wants to stand out. So but that's again a conversation for another day. (laughs) (laughs) Next podcast. right? All right.
0: Well, re. As always, I appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you teaching our audience as well as teaching me, because a lot of this stuff is new to me and it's not. And and Nicole over here, like with her hands, like what about me? my needs? We
1: what about me teaching
0: us about heart rate variability because this isn't anything that I would ever really read on my own. So I definitely learned a lot and took a lot away from this podcast. So thank you for that. And I hope that for anybody listening to this episode that they took a lot from it as well in terms of wearable technology, how to apply it what the difference is between different types of technology and really how to focus on rest and recovery and listen to your body and learning to kind of be intuitive with yourself Mm -hmm. in terms of your readiness to train and other lifestyle factors that you are going through on a day-to-day basis. And I hope that was helpful. So thank you, Riri.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on again.
0: Absolutely. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week.